The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Back in episode 86, I covered the initial issues of Brand New Day. The all-new, all-rebooted, kind of, sorta, new incarnation of Spider-Man. For those not into comics, or Spider-Man comics at any rate, Marvel Editor-in-Chief Joe Quesada had a real bee in his bonnet about Peter Parker, aka Spider-Man, being married to Murray Jane Watson and set about undoing the marriage in the dumbest way possible. In the storyline, Mary Jane made a deal with the devil. Well, Mephisto, the Marvel Comics version of the devil. Yeah, it was as stupid as it sounds. In this deal, Mary Jane made a deal with Mephisto to give up the marriage for reasons, to save the life of Aunt May, who had been shot. Hmm. I did say it was as stupid as it sounds. This had a knock-on effect on previous stories. Peter and MJ, it turned out, had lived together, but hadn't married. So stories from the past did happen, but not quite as you remember them or as they were depicted in those comics, should you go back and pick them up. Okay, whatever. It's comics, Jake. Harry Osborn, killed off after suffering a relapse as the Green Goblin, a family trait, was now back alive. Because comics, but now estranged from his wife, Liz Allen. They have a child, Normie. Hmm. Named after your father, perhaps. Well, Harry Osborne's father, Norman, anyway. Norman Osborn, speaking of, the original Green Goblin, is also alive again after being dead, but that happened before Brand New Day. That's pretty much all you need to know at this point. I'll bring you up to speed as we go along. Peter is now a swinging bachelor, navigating the difficult life of being in his early 20s in New York City, whilst balancing jobs, relationships, and being the ever-amazing Spider-Man. Sorry, Spider-Man. Not Spider-Man. There's a hyphen in it. You know, guys, sometimes you've just got to shrug and say, it's comics, Jake, and move on. Other characters have been introduced, and again, I'll cover them as we go along for this continuation of something that I did, you know, like four years ago. I am, however, going to do things a little differently. Instead of devoting time to each issue, I'm going to go by story arc. This felt easier, as Marvel were releasing Amazing Spider-Man three times a month at this point. So stories were planned well in advance with rotating writers and artists, all under the watchful eye of editor Steve Wacker. 
it also felt for me time to mix it up a bit. You know, I've been doing the same stuff for a long time now. Mix it up a bit. Change it out a bit. See how it goes. Try and get through all a brand new day. Or this part of brand new day in under an hour. Let's see how that works out for me. So, starting off. We're going to pick up with Amazing Spider-Man 559 and 5 through, sorry, 561. By writer Dan Slott and artist Marcos Martin. Peter Parker Paparazzi boasts exceptional artwork and a decent story. Following J. Jonah Jameson stepping down after a heart attack, the Daily Bugle has been taken over by Dexter Bennett, a heartless media executive. Bennett tells Peter a photo of hot new film star Bobby Carr with his mysterious new girlfriend, hmm, will bring in the big books and Peter enters the world of the paparazzi photographer. This is actually an exceptionally good three-part story. Anytime Marcos pops over to Spidey, we're guaranteed a visual treat, and this is no exception. Martin's cartoony style is very pleasing to the eye, and his panel layout's crisp and clean. The story opens with a fun action beat as Spider-Man tackles Screwball, an online influencer who robs banks for clicks and likes. She's a fun character and ended upon the recent Spider-Man PlayStation game, along with lots of elements from this era, such as Mr. Negative and the Feast establishment that Aunt May works for. More of that later. At this time, Spider-Man is currently wanted for questioning in the Spider-Tracer murders. This lurid-sounding future Netflix special has a serial killer operating in New York, and his MO is bumping people off and leaving a Spider-Tracer as his calling card. Needless to say, most people in New York are not fond of Spidey at the moment thinking him to be a serial killer, so when he pops a spider tracer on Screwball, she reacts as you would imagine, and actually turns herself over to the police rather than be murdered by Spider-Man. Seems fair enough. There's a lot to chew on in the opening of this story, such as suggestions Peter needs to move with the times and update his resume, it's no longer good enough to take pictures and then send them to the DB later. He should be uploading them instantly. There are also discussions of the paparazzi and how far they are willing to go to get good money, asking the question, who are the real vampires? Paparazzi wouldn't exist if there wasn't a need for those photos. There wasn't people like us wanting to see that kind of photo. It reminded me of an interview Anne Hathaway did after she was upskirted, where the interview kind of made out that it was Anne Hathaway's fault that some dickhead with a camera had taken a picture of her undercarriage. Anyway, Bobby Carr is being pursued by an overzealous fan, a new villain named Paper Doll, who has took to murdering people who she perceives as threatening Carr. Whether this is Dan Slott's commentary on the fan base in general, who can say? This includes... His new girlfriend, who you will be surprised, I have no doubt, to learn that it's Murray Jane Watson, making her triumphant return to these pages for the first time in a number of months. Sadly for Peter, he never sees Murray Jane, making the tale bittersweet, but Slot manages to pack a lot in nevertheless. Nothing about these issues feels decompressed or padded, with scenes moving nicely into each other. Story progression is well handled, and developments doled out with humour. A touch I found particularly humorous was the coffee shop chain named Star Brands Coffee. We should see more of that. 
Speaking of coffee, Harry now owns the Coffee Bean, the hipster hangout of Peter and his friends in their college days, and business is booming. So much so, Harry is thinking of franchising out. Harry is currently dating Lily Hollister, a young girl whose father, Bill Hollister, is running for mer. But she's not that young a girl. She's in her early 20s. That makes her sound like he's dating like a 15-year-old or something. But she isn't, because this isn't a John Byrne comic. Anyway, all this information will become useful later. By story's end, Peter has moved into his new apartment with NYPD officer Vin Gonzalez, who hates Spider-Man. So that'll end well then. Everything old is new again, as you can see from these stories. Amazing Spider-Man 562 and 563 is a two-part story by Bob Back to the Future Gale, with art by Mike McCone and Marlo Alquiza. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I apologise to Marlo if he's listening. The other Spider-Man sees our hero on the out with Dexter Bennett and the DB after refusing to give Bennett the paparazzi photos he had taken. Peter is now struggling to find a job just after he's found a new place to live and, of course, his rent is due. Still, he has plenty to keep his mind occupied. A foe called The Basher, who claims to have fought Spider-Man before, calls Spider-Man out for a fight. Spider-Man has no memory of this guy. Neither do we, lovely listeners. It turns out that it's all a ruse. It's not that you're getting old and your memory's failing you. By The Bookie, a criminal bookmaker who takes bets on the outcome of superhero fights. The Bookie works out of the bar with no name, a notorious criminal hangout. This was another fun story, pushing forward the main plot beats, but still allowing for some levity. The bar with no name is a wonderful little place, full of scum and villainy, and was the main place to be seen for villains looking for work or just needing a drink. It does beg the question, if all the heroes know about this place, why aren't they raiding it? But best not to think about that too much. McCone's art is again clear and easy to follow, and it benefits greatly from not looking as muddy as other comics in this era. The other Spider-Man of the title proves to be Screwball, who has been paid by the bookie to up his odds in Spidey's fight against the Basher, who, Kel surprise, isn't the real deal. The Enforcers in particular are not happy that the Bucky is stacking the deck because they had bet on the Basher and take him out to Coney Island to do away with him. Spider-Man and the Bucky's father save the day, but Spidey makes the Bucky and his dad give up any money they may have made on this scam to feast the charity organisation Aunt May works for. Told you I'd mention it later. Gale creates a dense read at a time when comics were manufactured for the trade. And this is what really makes this era stand out now. Each story is its own length. The now traditional six-part trade fillers sit next to one, two, even three-part stories. Despite a mixed bag of creators, Wacker deserves credit for pulling together a coherent read. A case in point is issue 564, POV, written by Gail Slot and Mark Guggenheim, with art by Paolo Siquera. The cover boasts, you never read a Spidey story like it. But Peter David wrote a similar Roshiman-inspired story back in Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 121, back in 1986. Again, everything old is new again. But let's not be too hard on Steve Wacker here. Loads of comics and TV shows have ripped this idea off. Speed Demon Driver Overdrive is up to no good again, probably for his employer, 
Mr. Negative, another brand new day era bad guy. Vin Gonzalez, on a rare day off at the baseball game, finds himself roped into the proceedings. It's a funny done-in-one that features more of Dexter Bennett's mania, Carly Cooper being cute, and Gonzalez's hatred of Spider-Man actually getting in the way of his life. Carly Cooper, by the way, is a new, on-again, off-again, possibly romantic interest for Peter. She works as a coroner down at the police station with Vin Gonzalez. Vin Gonzalez has a crush on Carly, which makes her liking of Peter a little bit uncomfortable for the two roommates. One of the things I did like about this era was this reintroduction of the soap opera elements of the strip, which kind of go away once he's married. To cover the gap in shipping, the Spider editors would occasionally publish extra issues. Number one of Amazing Spider-Man Extra featured prelude stories to the upcoming character assassination arc and the return of Hammerhead, and a special one-off story about Harry Osborn's birthday. They're all pretty fun, although I had my issues with the Hammerhead story, which I will come to when that story kicks off proper. First up, though, Amazing Spider-Man 565 through 567 is a three-part story entitled Craven's First Hunt by writer Mark Guggenheim and artists Phil Jimenez and Andy Lanning. The story sees a mysterious new Craven, a young woman, seek out Spider-Man in his true identity, which she believes is Peter's roommate, Vin Gonzalez. See how I paused so you'd think... It Anyway, the young woman is Anna Kravinoff, daughter of the original Craven, Sergei Kravinoff. I don't remember where it was introduced that he had kids, but I'll go with it. Maybe it's a brand new day Mephisto thing. Who can say? Anna kidnaps Vin, doses him up on MGH, the mutant growth hormone drug that gives people superpowers for a short time, and plans to defeat him in battle. Yes, it's the most dangerous game all over again. That said, it's still a fun story, although with darker overtones than perhaps others in the brand new day. Following on from Craven's last hunt seems to naturally lead to bleaker storylines. Anna does quite a number on Vin here, using his gun in a crime scene, running him over, and then overdosing him on MGH, all because she thinks he's Spider-Man. I can't see this particular incident changing Vinny's mind on Spider-Man anytime soon. There's still a lot of humour to be mined from this situation, though. Initially, Peter's got a new job at a comic book store. I kind of wish they'd kept this up, at least for a few issues. Sadly, it only lasts for this one story, although there does seem to be some discrepancies here. Peter knows nothing about comics, although we've seen in prior issues that he did used to read them. At least, monster comics, anyway. We also saw Murray Jane buy him a copy of the first appearance of Supergirl in the Michelini McFarlane run. But again, brand new day, Mephisto, so who knows if that ever really even happened anymore. The central plot of this issue, though, hangs on the idea that Spider-Man only has one costume. A costume stolen by Anna for Winterwer. Now, sure, it's amusing that Spider-Man has to go and borrow a spurred Daredevil costume off Matt Murdock. But given how much he gets his suit ripped, I'd have thought he would have at least had one spur outfit lying around somewhere. It all culminates with Daredevil, a.k.a. Spider-Man, a.k.a. Peter Parker, rescuing Vin and Anna, escaping with her mother, Sasha Kravinoff, promising there is more danger to come in the future. 
The humour this time around comes from Peter constantly bigging up Spider-Man whilst in the Daredevil costume, and subplots are enhanced via newspaper headlines about the upcoming mayoral elections, which will come to a head in the character assassination arc I mentioned earlier. Once Vermin becomes involved, though, I have to say I disengaged a bit. I'm just not really that bothered about him as a character. The ending is a bit odd. To cover his secret, Peter visits Vin in hospital, but as Spider-Man. He tells Vin that to throw people off the scent of his secret, Spidey has planted clues to decoy Spider-Men throughout the city. This seemed a tad extreme, and as you can imagine, it didn't go down well with Vin. I can get behind that, because this kind of implies that Spider-Man is making innocent people targets. He's putting innocent people's lives at risk to cover his own ass. It's not a good look. Next up is the first major story arc of the era New Ways to Die, spanning six issues from issue 568 through 573, written by Dan Slott, with art by John Romita Jr. and Klaus Janssen. You can tell that Marvel thought that this story would be a big deal, or wanted it to be at any rate, as it opens with a full origin recap and then a brief retelling of all that has gone before in Brand New Day, perfect for newer readers. It's also a story that feels very much, to quote Ross Gallat, like a pivot, by which I mean the story spins off in new directions from this point. Menace! A new villain introduced in the earlier issues that I mentioned in a previous episode, is back targeting the Bill Hollister mayoral campaign. Since the death of Senator Parfrey, it's been a race between Randall Crown, backed by the DB, and Bill Hollister, backed by Frontline, Ben Urich's rival news group. They're not really terribly subtle in pointing out that the DB is conservative and Frontline leans more liberal. It's a lovely character beat that it's Harry who tells Peter to take any photos he has to front line, as they are Bennett's main competitor. And Harry knows how business works. Screw over your main competitor. I mean, you'd think Peter would have figured that out for himself, especially seeing as how many people he knows from the old days of the Daily Bugle actually work at front line. But brand new day, Peter doesn't seem to have a lot of common sense. So Peter goes over to Frontline with his pictures from his fight with Menace and he reveals a startling secret. A sweatshop of illegal immigrants working in the heart of New York City. But there's more. Reporter Sally Thorpe reveals that the buildings are owned by Randall Thorne. Thorne, however, has more than just Dexter Bennett in his pocket. He's also in bed with Norman Osborne. Norman Osborne is now a government-sanctioned leader of the Thunderbolts. You can see how this isn't going to go well for Spider-Man. John Romita and Klaus Janssen are pretty good here, offering up much better art than they would when they cross to the dark side to work at DC Comics. Janssen's inks don't look as scratchy as they usually do, as if Romita is doing full pencils, or possibly Janssen is inking with a heavier line. It's difficult to tell. Peter ends up employed at Frontline alongside old buddy Ben Urich, Robbie Robertson and a few other people from the old days. New Ways to Die is a hugely enjoyable piece of Brand New Day. Slot balances action with drama well and he doesn't lean into the overly humorous tone of the series so far, befitting this more serious story. His characterizations of the characters is better as well, particularly Norman, who, as I just mentioned, is now in charge of the Thunderbolts. 
Some of the better moments in the opening issue come from Norman and Harry's relationship, as we once again show that all of Harry's problems are due to his dad. Norman is so petty as to even destroy the coffee bean. In retaliation, Harry gives up all his dad's nefarious dealings to Frontline. We also learn that the Feast Centre, where May has been working, has gained a reputation for being a minor miracle for the sick and infirm, with many attendees suddenly recovering from potentially fatal illnesses, including one Eddie Brock, a former cancer patient, now on the road to recovery. When the Thunderbolt Storm Feast looking for Spider-Man Brock doesn't take kindly to the new Venom, Mac Gargan, the former Scorpion, and somehow, some way, the recovering Brock mutates into anti-venom. Slot has a good handle on Osborne, who despite now being a warmed-over Lex Luthor is written well here. This is what happens when a corrupt, manipulative liar manages to con himself into a position of power. Relentless, uncurring abuse of that power for his own ends, but all legal and above board. His unwavering pursuit of Spider-Man is well handled and tense, especially when Norman figures out that Spidey has a homing beacon in his suit to ensure that he's always in frame of his photos. Osborne himself dons the Green Goblin costume, as well as unleashing Bullseye and a new revenomified Scorpion on our hero. And Spider-Man endures one of the most brutal fights of his life. And this story eschews the light-hearted banter and witty dialogue of some of the more frivolous Brand New Day stories in favour of a grittier reality. It works. The storylines start to twist in different directions after New Ways to Die, with Harry taking a more central role, especially after Lily kisses Peter. Again, we're bringing the soap opera back to Peter's life. And whilst it may be a little predictable in the soap opera stakes, it works. Because Spider-Man is a soap opera. Just is. Lily's father is in hospital, thanks to Menace, and Lily has seen the more unpleasant side to Harry, thanks to his anger over his father. It kind of makes sense that she'd look to Peter and start to see him in a more favourable light. Overall, New Ways to Die was a bit of a hit, and after my last episode about Brand New Day, it's nice to see some improvement. Some of the issues of New Ways to Die had stories that featured extra pages, and two of the issues, 568 and 573, featured backup stories. Issue 568 is about Eddie Brock dealing and living with cancer. It's pretty much setting up where Eddie will go in the following arc, and it's competently written by Mark Wade. It falls down on the artwork. Adi Granov is a talented draftsman and designer, but as a sequential artist, I just find him really boring. A comic is still images, yes, but there should be a feeling of momentum, of movement, of excitement. Like Steve McNiven, I just find this kind of art stiff and unappealing. Mark Wade also wrote the backup in issue 573, in which Stephen Colbert, apparently a TV host and comedian, decides to run for office. With art by Pat O'Leaf, I presume given this features a real-life comedian, that this story is meant to be funny. But it isn't. I mean, it may be funny if I was aware of Colbert, but I'm not. I mean, I know the name, and I think he's a James Corden-alike late-night chat show host, but most of those American chat shows set my teeth on edge. And I kind of think if a story's supposed to be funny, 
it's supposed to be funny irrespective of whether I know Stephen Colbert is and what he does and who he is and all of that stuff. So we'll move swiftly on to 574, one of the best issues of the run. This is an in-depth analysis of Flash's time in Afghanistan, inspired by real-life events concerning US Army medic Jeff Gurin. It's a beautifully researched, incredibly moving story, written by Mark Guggenheim and wonderfully drawn by Barry Kitson. Flash Thompson has lost his legs in Afghanistan, and it's a story focusing on Flash's recovery. Guggenheim's story isn't gung-ho or a propaganda piece, and while Spider-Man isn't even in the issue, his influence and his values and his beliefs are all over it. If you haven't read this one, I urge you to check it out. Things take a dip with issue 575 and 576, a two-part story from Joe Kelly and Chris Bacallo. I find Kelly hit and miss. Often he's overly snarky, too cool for this stuff, writing style is off-putting, but equally he can sometimes deliver a solid tale. Sadly, for me, this was the former. My problems stem from his approach to Hammerhead, as I mentioned earlier on. He keeps banging on about what a loser Hammerhead was, but Hammerhead wasn't a loser. He was a great villain. He's only a loser to Joe Kelly. Also, I'm not a fan of Chris Bacolo's art. I find it either an interesting proposition or a distraction, and it takes the latter route here. Shots are either too close to see what's going on, or too far away, but filled with foreground images, blocking a lot of what's happening in the panel. The story is that Mr. Negative has amped up Hammerhead's power levels to a substantial degree, and he beats on Spidey as Spidey tries to protect a young gang member. The story is about something interesting, the gangland culture of the Bronx, but I don't know, it's rubbed me the wrong way. The best thing about it is the introduction of Nora Winters, a delightfully funny, sparky and witty presence. This is where Kelly's dialogue sparkles. Winters is a young reporter at Frontline, and she takes an immediate liking to Peter, especially to taking the piss out of him. I liked her a lot, and hope we see more of her. Of all the new girls in Peter's life, she was the one I liked the best. Annual 35 slotted in here, and is included because it wraps up the storyline concerning Jackpot, that has been so forgotten about as to not be mentioned at all in the issues I've covered in this episode. When Jackpot debuted, I suspect Marvel thought she'd be a bigger deal and catch on with the readers, especially as they went out of their way to intimate that it was Murray Jane. But it isn't, and it didn't, and this annual pretty much wraps up Jackpot's story. That it ends up being as good as it is, is down to writer Guggenheim and artist Mike McCone and Andy Lanning. Jackpot, it turns out, is really Alanya Jobson, a young woman who wants to be a hero and thus takes MGH. She adopts the name Jackpot and pretends to be Sarah Heret, who really does have powers, is registered, because this was the time all the heroes in Marvel had to be registered, but has no desire to be a superhero. There's a lot of good material in this story. Like, does someone who doesn't care about being a hero need to register? Should Spider-Man really be nosing around in other people's lives? There's themes of guilt and honour, things like that, and the story ends on a very bittersweet note. Had Jackpot become the big deal Marvel clearly wanted her to be, maybe she'd have been a contender. But saddling her with fleurs and big her and making her out to be someone else entirely scuppered the deal. 
It really is a credit to the creative team that the death of a disco dancer ended up being so poignant. Issue 577 is a single-issue story called Old Hunting Buddies by Zeb Wells and Paolo Rivera. After his failed stint as a comic store employee, Peter tries to get his taxi driver's licence. Meanwhile, the Punisher is after Moses Magnum, who's selling MGH on the black market. I had completely forgotten what a big deal MGH was for a short time. Spidey and the Punisher team up to bring him down. Of course, Spider-Man and the Punisher team up to bring Moses Magnum down. The art in this issue is not really to my taste. The Punisher is unrecognisable and looks really scruffy. His pants don't fit and his attitude is a tad too snarky. Spider-Man looks like he's walked off the set of The Electric Company. Spidey at least pays lip service to his dislike of the Punisher, but mostly this is a humorous team-up with a serious storyline about how the Punisher doesn't need to take MGH, as no one really wants to see his personal demons brought to life. Joe Kelly and Barry Kitson write and draw a backup story in which the bookie accuses J. Jonah Jameson of being the Spider-Tracer killer. It's quite fun, and sets up upcoming events. Issues 578 and 579 are two of the best issues in the run. Unscheduled Stop by writer Mark Wade and artist Marcos Martin is, on the face of it, another in the long list of Spider-Man against all odds stories that writers like to do every now and again to show us Spidey's strength of will. More often than not, they work, especially when handled as well as this one. Peter happens across a subway card with one ride left on it. Given the torrential downpour New York is currently undergoing, Peter decides to use it instead of web-swinging across town in the horrible weather and finds himself on the same subway as the jury in the Giacomo trial. Giacomo's a mobster for the Carnelli crime family and the jury are on their way to survey a crime scene. As the subway heads under the river, the shocker rocks the tracks, trapping the jury. If they die, they can't testify. Spider-Man must fight to free the jurors as the cave fills up with water. As you may have guessed, Wade throws every obstacle in Spidey's way to prevent easy success as he battles to save the lives of the subway car, and this is one of the tensest and most claustrophobic Spider-Man stories ever. Spidey keeps his sense of humour throughout, even in the face of insurmountable odds, and even meets a new friend, the father of J. Jonah Jameson, J. Jameson. The art is wonderful, moving from charming to dangerous and back again with ease, all the time retaining the Martin Fleur. This is a winning two-part story. The best Spider-Man writer after Stan Lee, Roger Stern, returns for a one-off story in issue 580 and teams up with artist Lee Weeks. It would have been nice to see John Romita Jr. work with Stern again, but I guess that was not to be. It's another fun issue without May becoming embroiled in a bank robbery committed by The Blank. Peter joins forces with a policeman from his days working at the Daily Globe, Ray Donovan, looking nothing like Liv Schreiber, to catch this new villain. The Blank is a typical misunderstood Marvel bad guy in that, yes, he's robbing banks, but he's doing it to be able to afford treatment to not be The Blank anymore. Stern slips back into Peter's head as if he's never left, and Wix's gritty, street-level art serves the story well. It's very much an issue that exists to give the main creative team some leeway, but I'm not going to use the term filler. 
Because let's be honest, that's become shorthand for a single-issue story. But it's also come to mean bad, and this isn't necessarily so. This isn't bad at all. It's a great little one-issue tale of a kind comics used to do all the time before people became obsessed with every single issue mattering to the overall picture. We look back now on the X-Files, and the filler episodes are the best ones. No one cares about the alien black goop anymore. We want more Eugene Victor Tombs or Mulder and Scully appearing on Cops. Yes, this is a done-in-one, but it's a bloody good one. What else do you want from a Spider-Man comic? Issue 581 and 582 are another two-part story from Dan Slott and Mike McCone, Mind on Fire, which finally deals with the fallout from Harry Osborn's mysterious return from the dead. In it, we learn that Harry survived pretty much the exact same way that Norman did, the Goblin Serum. Now, I've wondered for a while where it was confirmed that Harry took the Goblin Serum, but apparently he did, and James DeMathis built his Green Goblin stories around it, and they were great, so if DeMathis says it's so, then I'm willing to go with it. Slot is building off what DeMathis did when Harry died, and also the explanation for how Norman survived, the Goblin Serum acts as a healing catch-all, is also nodding back to previous issues. Due to it being in his bloodstream, Harry didn't actually die just like his dad. And his dad, Norman, hired Mysterio to do the heavy lifting on making it look like Harry was dead, whilst Harry was really in that mystical land, Europe. Harry was led to believe he suffered a drug overdose and Norman was protecting him. As retcons go, it's pretty slim, but whatever, there have been worse ones. It still leaves loose ends and that's what this story is about. In episode 85, I said the mystery of who rebuilt May Parker's house was never resolved. I was wrong. I'd forgotten that this story states that Harry rebuilt the Parker home for them. The other major loose end is Liz, Harry's wife, and Normie, his son. As an aside, given the fractious relationship Harry has with his father, naming his son after him seems a little bit needy. Anyway, Harry and Peter are on their way to Jersey to see Liz and Norman. As you can imagine, Liz isn't terribly impressed with Harry pretending to be dead, even though it's not really his fault. He's here to try and help with Norman, who keeps decapitated Spider-Man doll's heads in a box, and with Mark Raxton, the molten man who is Liz's stepbrother. Mark Raxton is rapidly deteriorating, his molten form continuing to mutate and burn him up. Harry has been misjudged, as, all this time, he's been using the resources of Osborne International to develop a cure for Mark Raxton. It's a bit silly that Spider-Man shows up here and no one puts it together that he's really Peter, but that seems to be one of the side effects of Brand New Day. Not only do people not know, they can't even figure it out. The Harry Liz stuff is nice, if a bit too pat, and Peter's relationship with Harry is also nicely explored, even if it seems to steal a lot from the Sam Raimi movies rather than the comics. The one that destroyed the Parker House and the Joe Michaels Rosinski story, and the original Molten Man, originated in a Lee Ditko issue. Liz and Harry are definitely on the outs, which is a shame, as Liz and Harry was one of the nicer relationships to come out of the Len Wein run in the late 70s, but we needed to move Harry into this position where he's dating Lily Hollister so we could create soap opera shenanigans and, okay, whatever. 
it is what it is. Finally, issue 583 is by Mark Wade and Barry Kitson and is a lovely done-in-one about Peter and Betty's relationship. Platonic allows us to see Peter from Betty's point of view. As the girl who's known him the longest, Betty has a unique perspective on Peter, and Peter's loyalty to her is sweet, especially as she's being ghosted by everyone else for still working at the DB. They have a touching friendship, maybe even friends with benefits, but he's always there for her when she needs him. Finally, Character Assassination, which ran through Amazing Spider-Man 584 through 588, was a four-part story with a one-part interlude and had an epilogue in Amazing Spider-Man Extra Issue 3, written by Mark Guggenheim and drawn by John Romita Jr. and Klaus Janssen, with the interlude having art by Barry Kitson and the extra by Fabrizio Florentio and Pat Oliff. I apologise if I butchered that name. Character Assassination essentially wraps up the brand new day, with many of the core writing team, Dan Slott, Matt Guggenheim and Bob Gale, moving on. Well, alright, one of them was moving on. As such, this feels very much like a tying up of loose ends before leaving others left to dangle for future writers to pick up on. After all, corporate comics never die, they simply evolve into the next thing. It's election day and the mayoral race that has been part of the many bubbling subplots since Brand New Day began comes to an end with Spider-Man being soundly thrashed by Menace and ending up in prison and charged with the Spider-Tracer killings. However, Carly has discovered there is no Spider-Tracer killer. Cops have been planting the tracers on dead bodies in a conspiracy to take out Spider-Man, a vigilante menace, once and for all. One of the conspirators is Vin Gonzalez and his partner Al O'Neill. Matt Murdock does some lawyer jiggery pokery and allows Spider-Man to retain his anonymity, but Spider-Man is forced to flee jail when Vin ends up in Gen Pop after grassing on his conspiracy partners after they were going to kill him and have him be the Fall Guy. Not Lee Majors. Elsewhere, Harry has discovered Menace is Lily Hollister and breaks out the Goblin Glider to bring her down. The timing of this couldn't be worse, as Bill Hollister, Lily's father, wins the election. Menace, being revealed to be his daughter, causes him to step down before he's even begun, and Norman Osborn welcomes Lily Hollister to the Goblin family. There's lots to like in character assassination. There's some nice character moments between Peter and Harry, good art from Ramita Jr. and Jansen, and the plotting is logical and well thought out. Matt Murdock arguing for Spider-Man to retain his mask is a neat bit, and him then sneaking in Spidey's web shooter is a sly moment, not entirely within the lawyer rules. Carly also plays a good part in the story, being the one to figure out the Spider-Killer-Tracer mystery. However, there does seem to be a tendency to lean too far into the Spider-Man facing his biggest challenge yet, ever since Morlan, with every other major supervillain beating him to a bloody pulp. This is another of those kinds of stories. And whilst I'd be lying if I said it didn't work, there's only so many times John Jr. can draw Spider-Man bleeding through his costume before one wonders just how much punishment Peter's body can take. It's also quite a brave stance to have an interlude issue that lays out all of Lily Hollister's backstory in the middle of this mayhem, but it works to have that break. And it's exposition. It has to go somewhere. Mostly this is another pivot story rather than an end of an era. The Spidey Brain Trust may be gone, but Slot is sticking around for the next era of Marvel greatness, along with Guggenheim. Joe Kelly and Mark Wade to create the Webhead, still under the auspices of editor Steve Wacker. So really not much is changing, and people wishing for a return to the previous status quo of Peter being wedded to Murray Jane would likely be disappointed. 
have to say, though, I wasn't disappointed. Brand New Day has really shaped up in this batch of stories. Listening back to episode 83, I was a tad harsh on the era, perhaps feeling, rightly, let down by the absolutely horrendous One More Day, arguably one of the worst Spider-Man stories ever written. So, either this run of issues was significantly better than the earlier run, or I'm just not getting wound up over something that happened in a comic book over a decade and a half ago anymore. Things change. People change. Comics change. Marvel have made the decision to take Peter back a step, and, accepting that, these issues read quite well. There's adventure, excitement, and really wild things, plus some neat character beats, and taken on their own merits, there's some good work here. Solid comics by solid creators. There is also another possibility, that after the goes-nowhere Nick Spencer run and the waste-of-time return of Ben Riley, that these simply seem good in comparison. That's possible, I guess, but mostly these were better thought through and more entertaining than a lot of what came later. I fully understand why some people would write this off, especially after the dreadful One More Day, but it's an era of comics I think time has been mostly kind to. So we'll continue on this journey, and next time I'll pick this up when I run through to issue 600, which was yet another end of an era. And that about wraps it up for this time. Hopefully you'll join me next time as we carry on looking at this brand new day era of Spider-Man. Even though it's not a brand new day anymore, more like the back half of the week where you really can't be asked. But you've got to power through Thursday and Friday so you can get to the weekend and start having some genuine fun. You can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com or hit me up on the socials if you have something to say. See you next time. Everything's going to be okay. Goodbye.